0: can take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. We're continu- continuing to follow Luke's account of the very first church, and uh, a major theme in the book of Acts is the unstoppable advance of the kingdom of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel as people continue to believe in Jesus and they continue to pour into his church. Uh, We've also seen that whenever the gospel advances and the church presses forward, there rises up something that threatens the growth and the well-being of the church. The satanic powers hate Jesus and hate his bride, the church, and hate the gospel which saves sinners from the domain of darkness and they will stop at nothing to weaken and corrupt and destroy the church. And so by the time um, we get to uh, chapter 4, we're told that many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And then when you, you know, tack on women and children, Uh, We're talking about a pretty large church here. Uh, But then immediately, we also read that that, that Satan stirs up the religious authorities to put external pressure on the church. They threaten Peter and John and warn them to never again preach in the name of Jesus. And so the question is, will the church be intimidated? Will the church be cowed into compliance? And the answer is no. They continue to preach the word all the more. And people continue to believe all the more. But then, in the wake of that, Satan not only puts external pressure on the church, but in chapter 5, we see him attacking from the inside, and he corrupts the heart of a church member named Ananias, who engages in deception and hypocrisy, but his scheme is exposed. And the Lord strikes him down. And that stirs up great fear in the community to the point where many will not dare join the church. But at the same time, others are drawn to the Lord. So Acts 5.14 tells us that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And this leads then to more external attacks as persecution from the religious authorities ramp up and and even get violent. We saw that last week, and yet nevertheless, Acts 5.42 tells us that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ, followed by the first verse of the next chapter, which says, now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. So, Satan's schemes to undermine the church backfire seems like no matter what the powers of darkness do the advance of the church is unstoppable and that's the point of the book of acts jesus said that i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and that is exactly what we see happening and yet the enemy is relentless he never quits harassing the church. He's always probing for weakness, looking for inroads into the church. And, and while ultimately the church big C, the church universal, will grow and prevail, church history is nevertheless littered with the wreckage of individual local churches that were not on guard. And this is why Peter urges churches in 1 Peter 5.8 to be sober-minded, be watchful, be on guard. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of the ways that we can be sober-minded and one of the ways we can be watchful is to learn from the pressure we see put on this very first church in the book of Acts. And what we've seen so far in this book and what we're going to see today and, and what's coming in subsequent uh, chapters, uh, we're going to see tactics that the enemy loves to employ against churches. John Stott once said that over the years, Satan has changed neither his strategy nor his tactics nor his weapons. He is still in the same old rut. So a study of his campaign against the early church should alert us to his probable strategy today. If we are taken by surprise, we shall have no excuse. True enough. And what we're gonna see today in chapter six is perhaps Satan's most clever attack on the church so far. This one is not as obvious. It's more subtle. And it makes it all the more dangerous. The kind of things we see happening with the Jerusalem church in our text today are not unlike things that are happening in churches everywhere today, and if not recognized and dealt with, uh, can actually lead to a compromise of the gospel and the destruction of that individual church. It can even happen here at Harbin. So be sober-minded, be watchful, And stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. We are in Acts chapter 6. We'll start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 7. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this to be your holy and inspired word, not not uh, fairy tales, not the opinion of man, but the direct word of God for Harbors Community Baptist Church this morning. So I pray that you would help us now to have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in this text right now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are three things we see in our text today that are very helpful for us as a church today. Uh, We see here a new problem, a new problem, multiplication and division. Multiplication and division. These were great and glorious days for the church In spite of persecution and challenges, the church is still on mission. The members of the church are still evangelizing and preaching the gospel. And how do we know this? Because verse 1 says that in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. More and more people are believing in Jesus. And guess what? That can only happen through people evangelizing. The church is continuing to maintain an active gospel witness in the community. Despite the pressure, despite the, even the violent persecution now that's coming from the authorities, they're still preaching the gospel. And as a result, disciples are multiplying, which is exactly what we should expect from a healthy church where you have disciples making disciples. That's what any church should want, and may it be so for Harbin's church. You know, in our members meeting a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jared challenged us in regards to our personal evangelism so, so that we might see more new disciples baptized into our fellowship. Not, not simply just our church growing through transfer growth. People, coming, people are already Christians coming to our church, and, and, that's, and that's great, and, and we will receive that. But we also want to see gospel growth as well. We want to see new converts happening, more disciples being made. That only happens as y'all go out and preach the gospel. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter six. On the other hand, with growth comes growing pains. As more people come into the church, so does the potential for more problems. And guess what? Even the best of churches will have problems, which is important to remember. Some Christians are endless church shoppers. They they go to a church, and at first everything seems wonderful everything seems great. But after a while, you know what happens. They get to know the people of the church, and the people of the church get to know them. And and things begin to get a little rocky and bumpy. And after a while, they become disillusioned. And then those church shoppers just move on to another church. And you know what happens? The exact same thing. And they move on again, searching for that one perfect church, and they never find it. You know why? Because there is no perfect church, because every church is full of imperfect people. And so every church is going to fall short. Every church is going to make mistakes. Every church is going to experience relational tensions, and bumps in the road, and and disappointment with fellow members, or disappointment with the leaders of the church. People sin against you, and guess what? You sin against them. Well, this very first church in Jerusalem was no different. And because this church has so many people, as many as 20,000 according to some estimates, there are many opportunities for problems. And what we're going to see is that with the great multiplication of disciples, there is an opportunity for great division in the church. Verse 1 says that a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Jews. Now, this is a bigger deal than we might initially think. Let me give a little background to help us out here text mentions a complaint by the Hellenist against the Hebrews. Now, both of those groups are Jewish, but the Hellenists were Jews who had come from the dispersion. Uh, the dispersion took place hundreds of years prior when Israel's enemies came in, conquered them, and took many of the Jews captive and, and just spread them out across their empires. Many of those Jews held on to their faith, but over time, they adopted uh, foreign customs and practices and languages. And so by the time you get to the first century, quite a few Jews have become Hellenized. Uh, Greek became their main language. Uh, They were immersed in in Greek culture and Greek ways and Greek thought. Now, they were still Jews, but you could call them Grecian Jews. Uh, Some of these Grecian Jews ended up returning to Israel and settling there. But they held on to their Greekness, so to speak. And they even worshipped in separate synagogues from those that Luke here calls the Hebrews. Or you could call them Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic as their main language. And they were deeply immersed in Hebrew culture and Hebrew ways. They're about as authentically Jewish as you can get. And there had always been a rivalry between these two groups. The Grecian Jews would have seen the others as perhaps lacking sophistication and lacking culture and maybe somewhat closed-minded. The Hebraic Jews would have seen the others as not Jewish in the purest sense. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus saves people from both groups, and he places them in the exact same church. They used to worship separately. Now they're all together. And verse 1 says that the Hellenists... The Grecian Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, this is an echo back to previous chapters where we learned that one of the exemplary things about this Jerusalem church was their extreme generosity and care for one another. For example, Acts 4.34 said that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands... Or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice there that the proceeds are laid at the apostles' feet. The apostles are the ones providing management and administration over the mercy ministries of the church. But something's gone wrong. The Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews, feel like their widows are being neglected. The Hebraic widows are getting help, but the Grecian widows are are falling through the cracks and not getting the help that they need. This is a big problem because widows, in in, in particular elderly widows who did not have any family members to take care of them and provide for them, they were among the most vulnerable in society. They, They just couldn't go out and get a job, there was no life insurance. There was no government programs to assist, and and so the, the church needed to be the first line of help and care for folks in those situations, and honestly, that should continue to be a priority in the church today. Now, we don't know exactly why the Grecian Jews were being neglected. Some speculate that it's due to prejudice and favoritism. The Hellenistic Jews were a minority in the church. Or maybe it's not that, perhaps, and this is what I suspect, yes, there was neglect, but it was, it was unintentional. Uh, maybe there were uh, communication problems, communication gaps. Maybe the, the, um, the, the Hebraic Jews, uh, who were they're part of the, the, the majority culture, were better able to, to communicate their, their needs and their situations uh, to the church. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's some administrative holes here, uh, maybe as, as, as more and more people every day were streaming into the church, it was just increasingly difficult to make sure that everyone was cared for. But regardless of the reason, even though the 12 apostles were not likely visiting and delivering food and money to every single needy person in a church of 20,000, they did have administrative oversight. The funds were laid at their feet and the buck stops with them. And the complaints eventually find their way to the apostles. Now, that word complaint in verse 1, very important, could be translated as grumbling. Grumbling. In the Bible, grumbling has a negative connotation. And if you know your Old Testament well, that word grumbling should be bringing to your mind some things. As you'll be bringing to your mind the the Old Testament people of God, uh, uh, Israel, uh, where the the people began to to grumble and complain against the leadership of Moses. And when the grumbling happens, it never ends well for the people. And when, when grumbling and complaining goes unchecked in the church, it doesn't go well. It threatens the unity of the church. And it's not hard to imagine how this could have happened in the Jerusalem church. Some Hellenists are are thinking and talking among themselves and one asks, why is it that whenever there's neglect, it's always one of us that's being neglected? The the Hebrew widows, they never get ignored. Is, Is there some sort of favoritism going on here? Are we some sort of second class Christians? Those Hebraic Jews have always looked down on us. There's potential for serious division and a serious fracture in the church, and if things continue this way, it will lead to the destruction of this church. The Hellenistic Jews were fine to point out a problem, but they were wrong to fall into grumbling. Paul later on in the New Testament urges us to do all things without grumbling, what you have with grumbling is people speaking in, a, in an unloving, negative way towards others in the church. Maybe you did have a legitimate concern, but now that snowballed and that concern has morphed into something bigger than, than it should be. It's, it's been blown out of proportion. It gives birth to speculation. You begin to assume motives, thinking the worst of your brothers and sisters and leaders and not the best. You're not assuming the best. Now, now I've seen that happen in more than one church. I've seen that happen in this church. Not lately. But we too are vulnerable to this sinful attitude. We may have a concern. We don't deal with it rightly and in a godly and patient way. Instead, we grumble and complain to fellow church members. We begin to interpret everything that we see in the church through our negative narrative. And we even begin to see things that aren't there. And the average church member has no idea how his or her words can be a catalyst for weakening, splitting, and even destroying a church. There's a a horrifying warning in Galatians 5.15 where the apostle Paul tells the church, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That is a scary verse. The church can actually devour itself, while the satanic powers look on with twisted smiles. While the devil isn't explicitly mentioned in Acts chapter 6, I promise you that in this problem, the devil is in the details. Because the unity of the church isn't just a matter of whether or not we're having some sort of pleasant experience with one another. The unity of the church is a matter of spiritual warfare, In the book of Ephesians, which is a manual for spiritual warfare, Paul explains the glory of the gospel. That through the work of Christ, God has taken two groups that were, apart from Christ, not only at odds with God, but at odds with one another. Hating one another and despising one another. And God has taken those two groups and and he makes them into one new man. One family, united, bound together, not by cultural or linguistic ties, but bound together by the Holy Spirit and their love for Jesus, who's transformed their hearts to love one another. And in Ephesians 3, Paul says that, the, that God's grand purpose in doing this is that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities are the satanic powers, the devil and his demons. And as the members of the church walk in love and walk in unity, it displays something of God's wisdom to the powers of darkness. It mocks the powers and it signals that they have lost. And brothers and sisters, in light of that, Satan despises the local church. He despised the Jerusalem church. He despises Harbin's church. And he'll do everything that he can to tear down the emblem of God's wisdom. And one of the ways that he will do that is through sowing disunity in the church. This is the kind of danger the Jerusalem church is in in Acts 6, the the stakes are high here. Stakes are always high when it comes to the unity of the church. In spite of the exciting multiplication, there are here the dangerous seeds of division, which leads to the next thing we see in our text, which is a wise solution, delegation and prior prioritization. I love how the apostles deal with this problem. And by the way, although they are apostles, they are functioning right now also as pastors, as the elders of this church and they don't deal with this problem like how some pastors deal with complaints. Some pastors get hyper-defensive, or obnoxious, or even get angry. Well, who do these people think that they are complaining? I'm trying to leave this church. I'm trying to serve, and I'm trying to preach, and teach, and do all these things. Don't they appreciate what I'm doing? Or, some pastors will sweep problems under the rug, and turn a blind eye, and pretend that they don't exist. Neither do they, like some pastors, give in to the fear of man and give in to insecurity and totally freak out. Instead, they deal with the problem head on, and they do it by calling a church meeting. Verse 2 says that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. This is the first church business meeting in the Bible, which is kind of cool, because today here at Harbin's Church, after this service, We're going to have a members meeting scheduled to decide on some some very important matters. And Acts 6 shows us that this is a very biblical thing to do, to gather the entire church together to, to conduct the business of the church. So they call a church meeting and the 12 tell the congregation in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now that can be read in a negative way, as if table service, the meeting of the needs of the widows uh, is, is something menial and small and insignificant and that the apostles are above that. That's not what they're saying here. The apostles don't think that they are above this ministry. They've been deeply involved in this ministry. They've been in the thick of it to the point where they are in over their heads. This ministry is a big deal. It's a huge task. It's massively important. Everyone in the church knew that the care of widows was not just some nice thing to do, but that from the very beginning, God had always wanted his people to prioritize the care of the neediest among them. Long before the New Testament church ever came into existence, Deuteronomy 10 to 18 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In Deuteronomy 14, God commands Israel to ensure that the widow eat and be filled. And Deuteronomy 15 uh, holds up God's ideal for life in Israel that there shall be no one needy among the people. The pagan nations were to look at Israel and and to see the care and compassion and and, and to see the, the justice prevailing in the land and thereby learn something of the heart of the one true God. Likewise, in the New Testament church, those outside the church should look at the church and learn something about God's heart through our care and our compassion for one another. And so the mercy ministries of the church are no are no small thing. They're a vital part of the church's ministry. So the apostles here are not putting down table service. If anything, they're putting down themselves because they're admitting something that a lot of pastors won't admit. And that's that they have limits. And they can't do it all. God never intended one man to pour himself into all the ministries of the church. Neither is one man gifted to effectively do all the ministries of the church. If a pastor is doing everything, nothing is being done well. The whole church suffers. Guarantee it. But the good news is that God has filled every church, including this one, with a multiplicity of members who are gifted to serve in various ways, 1 Corinthians 12 says, There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. No one is independent in the church. You go on and read all of, of 1 Corinthians 12 and you learn that we're interdependent. We're all connected to one another, and we all have roles to play and ministries to serve in that everyone in the church benefits from. And the apostles, under the crushing load of trying to do more than they can, are coming to that realization in Acts chapter 6. And so they advise the congregation in verse 3, "...therefore pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty." Now, I, I think what you have here is the origins of the diaconate, the office of deacon. The word deacon simply means servant. And while the word deacon is not in this chapter, you do see in verse 1 uh, the word uh, diaconia. Obviously, a part of the, of the deacon word group. It even sounds like deacon. And it's translated here as distribution. Carries the idea of service. Or in verse 2, where it talks about serving tables, is the word uh, diakonane, which means to serve. Now, of course, everyone in the church is to be a servant, but in the church, the deacons are, you could say, leaders in service. Uh, They should be uh, those in the church who are exemplary servants, and they're appointed by the church to administrate specific needs. In particular, needs that may draw the elders of the church away from their primary calling, which we see in Acts 6, is ministry of the word and prayer. We'll talk more about that in a moment. While deacons are servants and administrators, not everyone should be a deacon. Notice in verse 3, the apostles don't just recommend anyone. They need to be people of good reputation in the church. In other words, they already should be known for service in the church. It says that they should be spirit-filled, they should be wise. There are Christians who excel in those areas, and and there are some that don't. But but certainly, all in the church should aspire to the qualities of a deacon. Not just the qualities seen here, but also in 1 Timothy 3, where we're told that deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not greedy. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, not slanderers but sober-minded, faithful in all things, managing their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, it's no small thing to be a deacon in the church. Deacons are among the most important servant leaders in a church alleviating the pastors from various ministry burdens that could drive them away from their main calling, making sure various ministries are being run well, being a godly example that the entire church should aspire to. And I can't say enough how thankful I am for the deacons of Harbin's church. For those of you who have served as deacons in the past, for those of you who are serving right now as deacons, I just want to say to you personally, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you have done, and thank you for everything that you are doing. It is such a help to me and and Pastor Jared, and a help to the entire church. There's no way a non-detail guy like me should ever be balancing the church's checkbook. So thank you, Nathan and Matt, for that. Thank you to Alex, who among other things, sets up the Lord's table for communion. So, so that's one less thing that is on my mind uh, to deal with on that Sunday, helping me to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. If something in the building breaks, I'm the last guy you want fixing that. I will make it worse. If you want to break things, call me. I'm the one to call for that. So thank you, Paul, for helping us to look after the building and And John is helping us in the area of security, making things here safer for our members and and for our children. He's the expert, I'm not. And and our deacons have and and, and are involved in other means of service behind the scenes and for that I am oh so grateful. There's one thing I I don't want you to miss about deacons. When we look at this chapter and the origin of the diaconate, we must not forget that part of the origins includes a threat to the unity of the church. And the ministry of the deacons are meant to respond to that. Listen up, deacons, or anyone who aspires to be a deacon. And, and we should all aspire to those deacon-like qualities, right? So this is really for all of us, but, but, the, but, the, but deacons, among everything else, are supposed to be guardians of the unity of the church, As you think about the the difficult and growing tension in the church in Acts 6, the last thing you need are deacons who are volatile, negative, impatient, immature, and unstable. And I I thank God that that we don't have any deacons like that. I've heard deacons described as as the shock absorbers of the church. In fact, uh, for the past few years at Harbin's, when when someone is considering deacon ministry, it's an article that I make them read. It's, It's called Deacons as Shock Absorbers. Uh, The idea is is that as, as bumps in the road come along in church life, as threats to the church's unity emerge, the deacons should be among the first to be a stabilizing, peacemaking, unifying force in the congregation. As one commentator put it, by locating the appointment of the first deacon in Acts chapter 6, right in the thick of satanic onslaught and opposition... Luke is reminding us that deacons are not mere officers of the organization whose primary role is to grease the wheels of the administration and keep the lights on around here. That's a minor part of their work. It's not the core of their business, and it's not why we need them the most. Deacons are soldiers in the front lines of spiritual combat, fighting with and for the cause of Christ. And as such, they are vital for the health and the growth of the church. Amen to that. Well, the apostles are realizing the importance of delegation. They're also realizing the need for prioritization. Verse four, they say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That was the primary calling of the apostles then. It's the primary calling of churches, pastors of churches today, to be engaged in the ministry of the word, to preach the word, to teach the word, to counsel the word, to study the word so that they might better preach it and teach it. And also to be engaged in prayer and lifting up the needs of the congregation to God and, and lifting himself up to God and the care and nourishment of his own soul so that he might be in a better position to care and nourish others in the church. And if a pastor is faithfully pursuing that calling, ministry of the word and prayer, That's going to consume hours upon hours of his time every week. What does the pastor do all week? Well, a huge chunk of our time is spent engaged in those ministries. Not playing golf. (laughs) Well, that means then, if that's true, that means that the pastor who's being faithful... Simply, is not going to have as much opportunities to engage in other kinds of ministries. And guess what? That's okay. Because again, it, it, it isn't just about one man. It's about the entire church. All of us serving in different ways according to how God has equipped and gifted them. I'm just a small part of this church. There's so many more pieces here to what God is doing than just me or just Jared. There's something else very important about the apostles' comment in verse 4, and and that it is that as important as the mercy ministries of the church are, they cannot come at the expense of preaching and teaching and praying. And this is a lesson that many churches need to learn. Uh, There are many churches that really are passionate in and excel in mercy ministries, in meeting needs in alleviating suffering, and that's good. And we can learn something from those churches. But sometimes such churches can be weak on the ministry of the word and prayer. And and this diversion from the word and prayer is, is at the heart of the devil's attack against the church here in Acts 6. Again, John Stott commenting on this chapter says that this satanic attack was the cleverest of them all so far. Stott says that Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution, chapter four, or corruption, chapter five, he now tries distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and preach and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine." What we learn here from the apostles is that no matter how compassionate a church is, no matter how many physical needs a church meets, no matter how many people it feeds, if the word of God and prayer is neglected, it will lead to the detriment of the church. Bread can feed the body and make it stronger, but without God's word and prayer, the spirit will become anemic. Nobody is made holy with a full belly, but with hearts full of the word. That's how one is made holy, because as the scripture says, and this also, by the way, is in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if you're here this morning and you're looking for a church, there, there are some folks here that haven't, that, that aren't members of, of Harbin's, I can see them out here. If you're, if you're thinking about a church and praying about a church, wh- wherever you pick, whether it's here or place else, make sure that it prioritizes the ministry of the word and prayer. Well, verse 5 tells us that the apostles' proposal pleased the whole gathering, and they end up choosing seven men. I like to call them the magnificent seven. Notice, they end up choosing seven men. That's important. It's not merely the apostles making this decision, but the whole gathering is involved. And what we have here is a biblical example of good church government which at Harbin's church we call elder-led congregationalism. Elder-led congregationalism is a form of church polity where the pastors, the, the elders lead the way and, and are responsible for the overall direction of the church and the congregation submits to the elder leadership. But on the other hand, the most important decisions a church has to make are not just in the hands of a few men. Instead, the entire congregation has the, the final authoritative say. And, and, and here, in this very important decision, the apostles, the, uh, though the leaders, ultimately submit to the will of the entire gathered congregation in regards to who the Magnificent Seven will be. And they're trusting, evidently, that the Holy Spirit will speak through the collective affirmation of the whole church. The other thing I want you to notice is... Um, uh, the, the names of these men that are chosen. These are all Greek names. It appears that the church, though dominated by Hebraic Jews, wisely zeroes in on Hellenistic Jews to help solve this problem. And I think that's absolutely awesome. I think that speaks well of the Hebraic Jews. They, they probably feel horrible about what's happened and they want to do everything that they can to make it right, right? And they know that choosing some Hellenist deacons will probably bring a measure of comfort and and, and peace of mind to the the minority. They didn't have to do that. But they're going out of their way to do what Ephesians 4 says, to be eager to maintain the unity of the faith in the bonds of peace. Now, we don't know much about the Magnificent Seven. We know a couple of them. We know Stephen and Philip. They're gonna figure prominently here in the next couple of chapters and they are known to be powerful evangelists. The other deacon that stands out to me here is the last guy on the list. His name is Nikolaus, and he is a proselyte of Antioch. I find that very fascinating. nicolaus is a proselyte. You know what that means? He wasn't born Jewish. He was a Gentile. He was a Gentile pagan who converted to Judaism and then converted to Christianity. I think the fact that these seven deacons were Greek-speaking Hellenists plus one full-blown Gentile, I think that's giving you a hint of the international and cultural diversity of the church that's about to come very soon. The church is primarily Jewish, even Hebraic right now, but not for long. So we have seen a new problem, which is multiplication and division, a wise solution, which is delegation and prioritization, And finally, we see in our text a supernatural conclusion, evangelism and conversion. Verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase. I wonder if you've noticed a continued emphasis on the word of God in this section. It keeps coming up. The biggest takeaway from this passage is, is not how to solve administrative crises in the church The main point is the priority of God's word. In verse two, the apostles say, it is not good that we give up the preaching of the word of God. Verse four says, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. And and then here in verse seven, it comes up again. And the word continued to increase. There are many things that a church can and should and must do. But everything a church does must ultimately be centered on the preaching and teaching of God's word both inside and definitely outside the church gathering. The church is not primarily a social club. It's not mainly a charity organization. The church first and foremost is a community of people that are being shaped and empowered and driven by God's word. Not only is the word of God uh, the means by which believers inside the church grow and are sanctified and can know God's will, but the word of God is the means by which those outside the church can hear about God and, and, and hear about the gospel and, and come to faith in Jesus Christ so that they too might enter the church. The word must be at the center of a church's ministry. And what happens? What happens when a church prioritizes the word? and is so lit aflame with God's word to the point where they cannot help but speak it in the community. Well, Luke tells you right here. He says, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. As the word increases, so disciples increase. As the more people hear about Jesus through the church's witness, more people get saved. Friends, I believe that if we here at Harbin's Church increased in the word, if we spoke the word to a lost community, say twice as much as we do now, we may very well run out of space in this sanctuary before too long. And wouldn't that be an awesome problem to have? Oh, that we would speak the word of God more. And not just inside these church walls, but out there in the community, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our friends, to our family members, even to strangers. The word of God is powerful. The word of God changes lives. Folks, that's why the devil tried to distract the church in Acts chapter 6. He just couldn't stand the word getting out. It is so powerful that that it can convert the most hardened sinner and the most unlikely of people as we see at the end of verse 7. Where Luke says, even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke means to get our attention and really grab us with that statement. Even priests are now coming to the faith. That's remarkable. Uh, The priests were steeped in the Old Testament religious system. They were sacrificing lambs for the atonement of sin. And now they're hearing the, the good news about Jesus Christ. Remember, where, where is the, the gospel often being preached? Is being preached in the temple courts as, as the apostles and, and other believers are, are in the temple and they're just preaching publicly preaching to everyone who would hear. And you can, so you can imagine priests that are showing up to, to do temple service and, and so they're, they're hearing the word. They're hearing the good news that Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, has come. He had his blood shed for the sins of the world so that if you believe in him, you don't have to keep sacrificing these animals because the one whom those lambs pointed to has come and has died and has raised for you. As those priests heard the gospel from the church, you can also be sure that the church's gospel witness was reinforced by the church's commitment to unity as even Grecian and Hebraic Jews who used to worship in separate synagogues are now part of the same church, loving one another, accepting one another, working out their difficulties, meeting one another's needs. In the church, those priests saw a community and a way of life that Israel was never able to reach. They saw the church and said, this is the true people of God, and I want in on that. It's interesting that Luke says that they became obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith. That is a very interesting way of putting salvation. Believing in Jesus doesn't just mean intellectual assent, uh, intellectual agreement with a bunch of facts about Jesus. It means following Jesus in obedience. These priests are leaving everything about their old lives behind. Some of them probably will be ostracized by their family. Some of them will be persecuted, but but they know that at last their Messiah has come and so nevertheless, they eagerly embrace him as Lord and Savior. If you're here today as an unbeliever, will you repent? Will you turn from your sins and be obedient to the faith? I hope you will. If you want to know more about becoming a Christian, I'd love to talk with you after the service or any of these other believers, many believers in this room, they would love to talk with you. It doesn't just have to be me. Church is not about one man. If you're here as a believer, let's be warned by Acts 6 that the unity of the church is not just between you and that other person or or people in the church that are irritating you. It's not just something that can go undealt with and swept under the rug. The stakes are really high here. Church unity is is a matter of spiritual warfare. And anything that undermines or compromises the church's unity is a gospel issue in that it distracts us from the mission of the church, which is to make disciples of all nations. And it ruins our witness in the sense that we talk about a gospel that unites us to God And unites us to one another, but when we allow internal crisis in the church to threaten our unity, we undermine the message of the gospel. We we don't successfully put the wisdom of God on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And, And the satanic powers love that. They love it when we fail at that. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus prayed that the church would be united would be one so that the world may believe in him. So then, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world out there that we're supposed to reach, let's not just let the deacons be guardians of the unity of the church, but let's all together join them in that so that the word of God may increase among us and and through us for the advance of the church, a church that even the gates of hell Ultimately, will not prevail against. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for building this local church, Harbin's Community Baptist Church. And thank you for the experience of unity that you have given this church in recent days. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we have issues and problems. And yes, we all still battle and struggle against sin, but you are doing a great work in this community. But I think we can do better, and certainly we can do better. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to grow in the area of unity in the church, that you would guard us from the sins of grumbling and complaining and, and gossip and All of those sorts of things that can bring churches down and completely distract us. And we see here in Acts chapter 6, Lord, that even when there might be legitimate complaints, like legitimate concerns, that those things can cause significant problems in the church and can even distract the leaders of the church from the ministry of the word and prayer and distract the church as a whole from its mission to reach the law. So guard us from those things. Father, I want to thank you again for our deacons. I want to thank you for deacons who have served in the past faithfully for years, and I want to thank you so much for our current deacons as well. These wonderful, godly, humble men who have been exemplary in their service, exemplary in their attitude, exemplary in in fighting for uh, the, the unity of the church, and I pray that you will help them to continue to serve in that way. That, that, as important as the, as the nuts and bolts of administrative ministry is, gar- being guardians of the unity of the church is even a bigger deal. And so help them, Father, to, to grow even more in that area and help us to follow their example. And help us to be a church where the word of God increases more and more and that as we share that word more and more out there, that more and more disciples would increase and be brought back into this church. Let there be multiplication and not division. In Jesus' name, amen.